Welcome to Argonex Sessions, episode 63. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken, and we're joined by a special guest, Fred Sharman. Our connectors may know him as 765, the handle he's had since high school, we just learned. This week, we're going to discuss AIA's national convention held last week in Philadelphia. So Fred, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, y'all. I'm really excited to be on the show. So why don't we just get right into it and keep on the reflections from this past national convention? Unfortunately, our connect in terms of Paul and I were not able to attend this year. So we have very fond memories from last year getting to meet up in the, in the meet space with Donna and Ken and do some podcasting from there. But unfortunately, we weren't able to make it out this year. So why don't you guys start out by telling me a little bit about the vibe in Philly and what it was like to have the convention hosted in that city this year? Well, Amelia, since you already used the term meat space, I want to say that this convention was the first chance that Ken and I got to meet Fred in meat space. And it was wonderful. Fred came out just for the last day of the convention to see Rem. And Fred, you seemed a little uh, a little dazed and overwhelmed by it all. Do you want to do you want to try to put that into some words? Yeah, I'm still impressed that you all did that for, what, four days in a row. The biggest thing is just to walk into that three block long space of the uh, exhibit hall. Uh, and it's just completely overwhelming. Um, and then, it, you know, to, to explore that in detail was was something that made a huge impression on me. What did you like? What did you see in particular that maybe didn't jive with what you expected that you were going to see? Well, first of all, I should say this is the first time I've been to an AIA national convention, and um, I recently just joined again as an associate member. So the trip was covered, which was a nice perk, and it was only about an hour and 10 minutes from Baltimore to get there. So it was a perfect day trip to come up and, and see the convention and to see you all. I did not have any preconceived notions uh, going in, mm-hmm. but I was amazed at how much of it is a trade show, which makes complete <laughs> sense, you know, in retrospect. I mean, everyone has to you know, we have to fund these things uh, in some ways, but the the linkage between, uh, I guess, AI continuing education credits, you know, that brings in an audience and then the surrounding kind of ecosystem of, of all the reps, it's just a really interesting economic model too. It's like the TV show and the commercials that help pay for the TV show all in one place. <laughs> I remember from last year in Atlanta, the floor was remarkably like a kind of a market floor where there would be representatives kind of reaching out at you and trying to grab you to sell their snake oil or whatever it was that they were trying to hawk. And it was an incredibly overwhelming atmosphere. Exciting, certainly, and, and dense with information, but certainly overwhelming. Everybody I talked with was really great. All the all the reps, I have to say, were really engaging. Nothing felt like a sell. You know, I made the point of talking with as many people as I could. And, and I was just, you know, I was playing slack-jawed yokel tourists, taking photos of of all the weird juxtapositions of textures and and signage and and people would just come up and and talk with me at the booths, of course, because they see me sort of standing there gawking. And they were always uh, really interesting to talk to. But the scan your badge thing was uh, was something that threw me off the first couple of times too. I guess every conversation they have to have a record of. So everyone has these. You you all probably know because you've been to these a million times, but. The, the custom badges with the QR codes that get scanned by an iPhone app that every booth rep has. And that keeps a record of how many people they've talked to over the course of the whole convention, which, you know, you're having this, this ordinary, you know, human to human interaction. And it, just, <laughs> it, it takes you out of it a little bit to realize this is being kind of recorded, quantified and monetized by some bigger system that, you know, we're all part of here at the convention. Absolutely. And and it's funny, I did not get any of the QR code scanning. And the reason for that is that you can get learning units then for having shown that, yes, you were at this or that booth learning about, you know, learning about their stuff. I, because I'm a, a regular and involved member here in Indianapolis, I go to the monthly meetings. So I get all of my learning units through the monthly things, which meant the convention for me, for a lot of people, it really is an opportunity to punch out all of those learning units at once. But for me, that's really not important. And so frankly, I only really went to one educational session, I think, maybe two. It's hard to remember now. And then, of course, I went to the keynote sessions. But it it gave me the opportunity to just spend more time running around the city of Philly, which was great. It was amazing for me to be back in Philly again. Ken, you left Philly saying, I like this city now and I never used to. Do you want to tell us why uh, why, why you like it now? I never really had the opportunity to kind of walk around the city properly. Um, I've always been on the edges of the city or through the worst parts of the city. And the people there, I've never really been a big Philadelphia fan. I'm, you know, more of a New York City Mets <laughs> guy. So I never really, the people always struck me as being just really just ridiculously rude. And that wasn't quite <laughs> the case. <laughs> and it was, it was, you know, and I have to say for 
a convention center location, you know, most of the convention centers I think I've ever been to have always been on the edges of edges of cities. So they've never really been fully immersed in the um, center of the city. So never really felt, you know, never really felt like the city was ever approachable. Like when you go to Atlanta, it never really felt like it was part of anything. It was always out somewhere else you had to get to. Same thing in Minneapolis, even though it's connected to the city, it just, it's never really into anything. Philadelphia is really nice because it's in the city. So it's really part of a much, much more walkable community. So it was easier to get outside of that that horrible building to actually <laughs> engage with the city. So it was much more pleasant experience. And um, to tell you how pleasant it was, I was able to wear my Mets hat and not get into a fight with anybody. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a plus for you me. Were, and you were spoiling for a fight, although we'll get to that later. <laughs> we're trolling, Ken. <laughs> as he does he does online as he does in the meat space and in the, yes. the most constructive way i will say in the most constructive way yes. exactly well i was seeing so many not just from you guys but also from gregory walker who i who might have i don't actually i'm not entirely sure he was even at the convention but he was yes in, he was okay he, because he was instagramming just a bunch of really great shots from of projects in philadelphia and i imagine like it was such an amazing opportunity to not just decompress by going and walking around the city but also to get all these opportunities to view architecture that you might not have otherwise had the opportunity to see. And uh, Donna, I know you saw a bunch of stuff as well. Maybe you guys could talk a little bit about what some different projects you saw just around town. Ken and I visited the barns first at night and walked around it just, you know, mouths open and then went back again during the day and actually went in and saw the inside of the building. So that's Todd Williams Pilly Chen's Barnes Museum. Was there an interview with them just ringing in your ears as you're as you're walking around, I can't imagine visiting these places after having spoken to the people who are actually responsible for them and not being able to not hear their own voices in my head saying, and this is the philosophy that I have around this idea. <laughs> I mean, their work is so identifiably their work. No one else builds anything like them. So it's, yes, you can't help but hear and feel and see their hand in every single thing about it. You know, as always, brilliant handrails. (laughs) I don't know how they do such good handrails. Always, every time. stairs. Stairs. Their stairs are so good. Fred, did you have any time to see some stuff if you were only there for the third day of the convention? I didn't. And uh, I actually don't know uh, Philadelphia very well at all. I've been taking the train up to go to Jury's at Penn. Um, so I'm usually walking in the opposite direction from 30th Street Station from downtown. I look forward to uh, making it up there more often. As I said, it's pretty close to where I'm at. I'm curious about the, the barns. What, it, what do you guys think? of? I think that um, Todd Williams, Billy Chen's work is like really hard to represent and photograph because it's so about the kind of material and spatial conditions. Is that what, what kind of struck you about the barns that, that couldn't be conveyed through representation? Exactly what you said, really. I mean, you really, you're touching a lot of different things, a lot of different materials, the textures, a juxtaposition of the, of the um, I think it was soda stone to the stainless steel panel. You know, the, I think it was a, uh, either Ipe. I don't remember. Stairs. Yeah. Yeah, just, you know, everything was just, you just had this really strong sense of the familiar, but very well crafted. And you could see where they were trying. I mean, I think part of their program for that particular building was to, um, interior wise, was obviously to emulate the uh, previous barns. So they took great pains to, I think, deal with the light in a very certain way. And the texture of some of the surfaces uh, was, uh, some of the wall surfaces were very, uh, very well handled. So I was, just blown away by the building. The sort of thing with Todd Williams, Billy Chen to me is always the material and how well they handle the material in in beautifully detailed and crafted ways. But what I loved was because I had been to the old barns in its original location, and then I saw Billy give a lecture here in Indianapolis about the approach they were taking to the barns and this idea that in the old house, you know, museum, sort of a house scaled museum. Everything was very compact and sh- and it, it was it's almost you know how you get museum fatigue. <laughs> you you really suffered from museum fatigue, especially at the barns because it's hung very what's it called, salon style and there's just tons of, you know, oh, there's a Renoir, there's a Rembrandt, there's a it's it's such an overwhelming collection. So Billy had said that they came up with this idea to insert these little moments of respite and that was the these courtyards so that now rather than go directly from one salon style room to the next you go into an exterior it's an interior space but it has a light well with a a courtyard and it really gives you this sense of okay calm yourself down again and sort of recover and rebreathe and reorient and then move into the next 
you know, wonderland of, of art that's in the next room. And so for me, this was really an opportunity to see how Todd Williams, Billy Chen are incredible architects as crafters of space and of experience in space, as well as just their, you know, more craftsman-like approach to materials. So I, I was, yeah, completely impressed. And then the landscape, of course, is wonderful. And I think that's by Olin, Olin Partnership, I believe. Yeah, it was great. Fred, we had initially intended to meet Fred at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts building by Frank Furness. And unfortunately, I botched it and we ended up not meeting him there. But did you get to see that building at all, the Furness? Only just peeking in the uh, the lobby. And that was something that uh, it, it's a, a project I remember uh, studying a lot in school. So that was really interesting to see even just a bit of it. Yeah. And then going up to Penn, of course, you've seen the Furness Library up there, which is which is unbelievable. <laughs> So Donna and Ken, you guys were there for all three keynotes, and Fred was able to catch the uh, Rem Kohlhaas' talk at the at the last day, kind of the anchor. Why don't we go through the keynotes here? Because there was some really interesting stuff happening just in the fact that there was a last-minute switch of, of uh, Kevin Spacey being swapped out for Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And there was a really great, at times, <laughs> at times problematic discussion happening on Arconnect once we posted the news that Julia Louis-Dreyfus, being interviewed by Terry Gross, was going to re- replace Kevin Spacey's spot. So I personally, as someone who couldn't be there, I'm really interested in hearing about all of these. So I want to hear about specifically, why don't we start with Julia Louis-Dreyfus's talk? Or even was it a talk or was it more of an interview, kind of a public stage interview, similar to Terry Gross' Fresh Air interview? Yeah. Okay. Very much so. Except for the swearing. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, this ain't NPR. You can do whatever you want. Yes. (laughs) So the rumor going around at the floor was that that the AIA gives opt-out clauses to their speakers and that Kevin Spacey took his opt-out clause at the last minute. And that's why he left. But what I heard today and from a reliable source is that Kevin Spacey has an opt-out clause in all of his lecture appearances. So apparently he just decided to take that clause and, and use it. And so uh, they you know, were suddenly left. Terry Gross, of course, is from Philadelphia. Fresh Air is in Philadelphia for people who don't know. So I feel like someone probably knew Terry and said, who can we get? Very short notice. I loved it. There was a lot of complaining. The, the AIA doesn't has an app that has a little social messaging board you can use while you're there. There was a lot of complaining on the AIA app during it. Oh, why are we hearing from an actress? Like what? This is such a waste of time. And I've of course, I fired back, as did I think many people, that she was telling great stories about her first job at Saturday Night Live and how it was kind of a crappy internship experience, basically. I mean, I feel like there were a lot of parallels to her decision making in her early career and the risks that she took and how she then turned those into other opportunities that were better that are completely parallel to what we do in our field. So was it Terry's job to kind of make this explicitly applicable to architects? Was she trying to kind of, I mean, because certainly I have a vested interest in that kind of, <laughs> in that kind of interview style of talking to people who might be a little bit outside of the community, but um, nonetheless have something useful or applicable to the profession and trying to draw it out in them. You know, I don't think, I don't think that was the goal here. I think, you know, rather than force it, just have a conversation and let people in the audience find whatever they want to find out of it. And I think generally the people that bitched and moaned about it were people already had a preconceived notion or didn't like Julia Louis-Dreyfus anyway. So they weren't going to hear, they weren't going to listen, let's just say, for anything that might be, you know, wow, I didn't, you know, there's something that's, that's a takeaway. If you just spend the time to listen, you could filter through just about anybody's conversation and find a lesson about life life lessons or about how to, about as a woman persevering in a particular profession as male dominated. She talked a lot about those things that are really, I mean, I mean, you can't find any value in that kind of commentary. I mean, I think it's extremely (laughs) appropriate for our ridiculous profession rather than hear some boring architect who puts you to sleep on day three of a keynote. (laughs) He who shall not be named. I'm sorry, day four, day four of the keynote. You know, rather than do that or have somebody talk about waterproofing for uh, another for an hour and a half, I mean, what can you possibly get out of something like that? So she was entertaining, which is generally what you ask a a professional uh, comedian to do. And she, you know, I think generally speaking, was it were you going to get capital A architecture out of it? No. But were you going to get an appreciation for what it's like to start at the ground level of something where you're not quite sure about what you're doing? You hate what you're doing. You may not 
you know, enjoy the people around you. But if I just, I could take something out of this experience and apply it to the next thing, I can apply that to the next thing and just keep growing as an individual. I thought that was incredibly valuable as a, as a, as a message. And, you know, if you don't like her, then you're not going to like, you know, you're not going to hear that message anyway. And I'd rather you not be in the room. And generally speaking, those people left. I just want to ask, do you all know if they're going to be uh, put online at any point? Do they usually do that with these keynotes? I think they have in the past, but from my own navigation of the press materials available on the AAA site, it is pretty spotty. So I, I, (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Um, but, but rest assured if they do exist, we'll, we'll find a place for them on our connect so people can have a good place to find them. At the very end, Terry Gross asked Julia Louis-Dreyfus, so you're building a house now, right? And she said, yes. And my architect is Marmel Radzinger and it's in California. And she spoke a little bit about that experience and how sort of terrifying and exhilarating it is. And I think there were some people in the audience who would have preferred if the entire talk had been about that. But I, I just I see that as selfish. I think as architects, we always want other people to talk about architecture and architects and what are their impressions of us, you know. But uh, it was nice to hear from someone else for a change. You know, I love architects more than anyone, but it's nice to hear from other people. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Wow. Are you into s and <laughs> Is, is that a Terry a Gross question? question. <laughs> no, that is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I would like to bring up Ken's little uh, nuanced statement there about boring day three and maybe go ahead well, and talk about Ram yeah. a little. Can we do yeah, that? Let's do that. Fred, I feel, I feel like you've got a lot to say about that. Well, I, I, I mean, I've been tracking a thread and, and thinking back about the convention that has to do with the valorization of the normal. And I think it, it, showed, it showed up for me really strongly at, at the expo floor where all the signage is celebrating, celebrating steel and discovering glass and all this, you know, this everyday <laughs> materials that, 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 that everyone is supposed to get so excited about. And, and it does, it yeah. gets you a little excited about it. And I think, you know, it's probably a thread that runs through, um, uh, that runs through Denise Scott Brown's work too. And, and of course, Rem's work. So maybe, you know, I can, I can reevaluate that conversation that, that Rem had with Mosa Mustawi as, as just kind of a normal conversation that happened to be on stage in front of, what 6,000 people. Right. Because it was, if, if Julia Louis Dreyfus's talk was unexpectedly relevant, I think their talk was maybe unexpectedly not irrelevant, but just <laughs> ordinary, maybe after having yeah. been so hyped. So that, that really struck me. I mean, the delirious Philadelphia as a title for a talk is, is pretty provocative, you know, harking back to Rem's uh, foundational text. And then to not even mention Philadelphia, not, you know, Never mind deliriousness is is pretty striking, right? So <laughs> so maybe that was kind of the point. And maybe we can say they switched it up on us. Yeah. 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 I was delirious. I know <laughs> that. <laughs> um yeah, it was not it, it was fair it was pretty dry. Let's just say that. It was it was pretty dry. And um I feel like what a lot of what we try to do or have tried to do with the podcast is to get people to talk just on a more straightforward level, you know, like Ken's question, what are you reading? What are you listening to? Sort of what's impacting your world right now? I I really was just dying for that kind of question of Rem, you know, Rem, what do you, you know? We could have handled it better. Honestly, you know, we should have just said, you know, I understand you're the dean of Harvard and all, but let us handle this. Yeah. So you didn't get a chance to, at some watering hole later on, catch the shine off of Rem's forehead and go over wait, and say, wait. here's my okay. business card. Why don't you uh, come over and we'll we'll set up a podcast with you? Well, Ken caught the literal shine. He found his glasses. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh yes, you were. St- okay, so catch us up. Ken, tell the story. So we decide we're going to get up on stage and just, you know, because one at the of, end as everyone's leaving. Well, OK, fine. A- after the keynote, <laughs> after the keynote, after everybody's leaving and um, the crowd's kind of gathering around Denise Scott Brown and getting all their selfies taken. And we just kind of walk up there and sit down and I look and there's these glasses kind of stuck in the stuck in the uh, fold of the chair. And I went, oh, no. So we get we quickly snap the photo. Fred took our picture. Yeah, Fred. <laughs> so when you see the picture, you'll see that it's me and Ken on stage and Fred is the photographer. So all three of us are represented. Yeah. So I went to try to track somebody down and first I was approaching Bob and then I was, okay, well, this is probably not a good thing. Bob Ivy. (laughs) Yeah. And then, uh, I was looking for somebody else and I caught the back of Rem and I started walking after him. And I swear to you, I think he levitates when he moves because I've never seen anybody move at the pace that he moved at without actually running. He was on a hoverboard or something. He was doing something. (laughs) It was like, he's like Kaiser Soze. I swear to you, if Kevin Spacey wasn't there, Kaiser Soze was because that son of a bitch actually went through an (laughs) exit that I never even, I'm like, where did he go? He's gone. And I never got his glasses to him, but I was able to get to motion and 
and you know, and that was, <laughs> I, I, I really wanted to keep them, but everybody, <laughs> I, really, I mean, they were, they were, they were really, really cool, but they were really, really like cheap looking, like, almost like Dutch and like, uh, readers. Like if you yeah. would go to like a Dutch, you know, um, Walgreens or something, but they were really cool. And I'm like, Oh, these are, you know, these would be great to have as a conversation piece. I'll <laughs> auction them off on eBay or something. But he got them back, I think. Unless Motion kept them, because he's going to auction them off. I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe it's like the lizards that can drop their tails and, and run away and escape. <laughs> but, uh, he just has glasses that he can use a diversion in order to, to leave events afterwards. That's All great. over the place, yeah. That is yep. a true skill. I mean, because I imagine he would have just been completely mobbed if if uh, if otherwise. You know, the the most shocking thing, most shocking keynote actually was uh, Nary Oxman. Uh, I've never, you know, I've only been to three of these. And as far as I can recall, she is the only one I've ever seen get a standing ovation. And she was talking about some pretty heavy stuff, but leveling at a way at the audience where she wasn't like flying over the head with mathematical calculations. She was really, she was present. She wasn't using um, the teleprompter, the teleprompter, yeah. the, no, Bob not at Ivy, all. the I, Bob Ivy talking machine. <laughs> she wasn't using that at all. So, I mean, there was such a, I mean, such a wonderful presentation of what she was doing, honest of talking about her failures in her work and, and talking about where she wants to see this go. And it was really just a, a, Really nice to hear somebody that, you know, that motivated by the future of architecture. Yeah, I'm really interested in hearing if you guys also know what kind of the general audience response was to her keynote, because she does operate in such a specific field. And she is in kind of this ivory tower community at the MIT Media Lab. And her, she directs the Mediated Matter Research Group. And her work is fascinating. But it also is something that, uh, as you know, we talk about all the time, might be a little bit out there for most more traditional architects. And certainly, the, I would I would expect the majority of those attending something like the AA convention. And I know from experience that she's a really good speaker only because I've like seen her TED Talk. And the only reason I saw her TED Talk was because my dad forwarded it to me because he found it fascinating. And he is he is probably the farthest from design guy you can imagine. I mean, his, his testament to modular design is stacking used tofu, empty <laughs> tofu containers on his desk to put different pushpins in. And like, that's his extent. But having, being fascinated by someone like Neri's talk, and I think it really brings this wider conversation to the table, but I'm not so sure necessarily how it might have landed at the AIA audience. I can say, Fred, you know, you and I, when, when Rem was up there, you and I were sitting next to each other and sort of joking about the audience having both sort of black clad intellectual types, as well as a bunch of guys wearing Dockers, Baggy. you know, yep. <laughs> um, I can say that today I was in a local AIA meeting with a bunch of Dockers wearers and um, wonderful people. They were all blown away. And the word that they all heard was that Neri Oxman blew everyone away. So I think she reached across every typology within our profession in the way that she was speaking about research and about um, the future and about building. And, you know, she knows her shit. That's what it comes down to. She knows what she's talking about, which is a great thing to witness. <laughs> you know, it, it was so thorough and it did such a great job of looking at the experimentation and then providing an, a nexus to uh, materials and architecture and construction applicability. So it was really this, you know, she could talk about like uh, silkworms in one minute, talk about, you know, thousands and thousands of silkworms she had to purchase and showing them constructing this, this, uh, this dome structure. But then she started, it's like, okay, so what? But then talking about, well, we could do this with concrete and, and making, then going back to saying, well, here's a, a palm tree and this is how a palm tree works. And so there was this constant back and forth. So it was always tantalizing and terribly interesting to hear. And you just kind of, you see that kind of experimentation with materiality and you're thinking about like, where is this going to go? And you're like, you're excited by it. It's not, you know, it's not, um, it's not blob. It's weird because on the, you know, her, her fashion stuff left a lot to be desired for a lot of people, but it was interesting. And it made you think about like other implications, like ethical complications with uh, dealing with certain things and using slave technology. And it just, it just has, has this, it opens up this discussion plane uh, that kind of extends these tentacles. And it just, you just have your, you find yourself having conversations about things that aren't really related to, you know, these really complex uh, mathematical equations. And you're talking about much broader issues. So it's very, very interesting. I think that's why people mostly engage with it. So I, I would like to give Fred an opportunity to talk a little about Neri and space, because Fred, you haven't really had the chance to plug your 
NASA project, but can you talk a little about that and then relate how you might, you made some comments to me about how you felt about Neri's work in relation to outer space? Yeah, I think her, I, I'd really like to see this talk if it ends up online because my, I know her work, but um, most recently the the um, thing that she's gotten a lot of press for is this this suite of uh, experimental uh, clothing that's built build is for different extraterrestrial environments. So like a, a dress for Jupiter or shoes for, uh, shoes for Mars, but which, which struck me, you know, as somebody who kind of follows space and architecture as having a kind of fast and loose relationship with you know, the science and actual environmental conditions. But it sounds like she really knows her stuff as a material scientist. So I I'm, I, I would really be uh, thrilled with the chance to take another look at her work. But it, was she also talking about, you mentioned like um, technologies and, and the kind of ethical imperative with regards to biophilia and fabrication. Was that I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, that's I not, definitely. Yeah, because that, that's that is one of my other ongoing interests is just uh, uh you know, non-human space, and what does it mean to make space for other beings in the world other than other than human beings? You know, what kind of imperative do we have when we're when we're considering other organisms and and even robots? You know, what do we what do we owe robots that that do the work for us in, in fabrication? So that's that's I don't know where that that goes, and there are a lot of people working in that same area, like Joyce Wong with uh, animal architecture and um, and some others. But it, it, it's just a, a thread that, that I find interesting to track, too. Simon Kim at Penn does work with non-human space as well. But, it, you know, what is it like to be a fabrication robot and what, and what or a Roomba? You know, these things that either build our domestic space or maintain it. And what kind of what do we what do we sort of owe them as 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 Donna Haraway says, as companion species? So the intersection of that stuff with space is is definitely an ongoing uh, interest of mine. So if if Neri has more to say about that, I I'm really I'm I'm listening. Well, she's certainly raising the conversation because she's talking about using bees, using silkworms, using bacteria, all those things. Ken, go ahead. What did you want to say? No, I think you know, and we we did um, Donna and I were able to just just real quickly talk about architecture lobby. Uh, event and they had an event out off site, but it was definitely connected to the AIA because it was really talking about you know architecture and internships and and labor. So it was really with Killian Riano and Peggy Deemer and Kiefer Dunn. So it was really uh, that was a thoroughly engaging discussion and, and definitely worth missing the the uh, rubber chicken and uh, bacon bits event. So what is that, Ken? What are you party? Re- the party, the big party. <laughs> oh, was it not brothers. in the football hall of fame that I so fondly remember from? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was in the ballroom at the convention center, and it was yes. the Bacon Brothers were playing. And um, from all reports I heard, it was they phoned in their their performance. So Ken and I were glad to escape over to Radical West Philly and go to the architecture lobby's presentation of reworking <laughs> reworking architecture. Donna, would you say the Bacon Brothers were a few degrees removed from from their performance? <laughs> I, I would say that's a very good way of putting it. They they brought the bacon bits this time, not the actual bacon. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we went over to see uh, to see this presentation of work that the architecture lobby did at the Chicago Biennial. That was also an unauthorized event, and this uh, it was a presentation of a film and then a uh, panel discussion talking about architects and especially young architects as labor. And they did these little performance skit sort of role playing things they did in the film were hilarious and wonderful and painful because they were so true. And I'll just a, a little piece of it was a sort of thing with a, a a little charrette with a client coming in and uh, there's someone building a model. And at one point, the architect in charge is leading the client through the office and the client turns and looks and goes, is that blood on the model? Like that's kind of the tenor of the of the conversation was around, you know, these people are working so hard and the principal architect is trying to sort of steer them away from the the misery of their labor. It was good and provocative. And yeah, we'll we'll definitely put some links up to it. Yeah, great discussion about about labor and yeah, it was really really insightful and pretty important. So yeah, I, I am trying to get people connected with that group here in the Twin Cities because I think it's pretty important that they do. But we also the other side thing is we Every time Donna talks and laughs, it's like a magnet for everybody who listens to this podcast, which is fantastic. Because <laughs> the first thing that happens is they come over and go, "We're a little starstruck. We listen to the we listen to your podcast religiously in the office." So, hi, Bob Stern. Yeah, Bob Stern's office. Hi, Esther. We want to reach out to you. We enjoyed meeting you so much. 
Yeah, we had a few uh, a few oral recognitions where people heard us talking and said, "Oh, are you guys that podcast?" That is so, <laughs> so that excellent. Yeah, it is. Then you just learn how to control your voice when you don't need to be recognized or don't want to be recognized. <laughs> I will have to learn to do that, I guess, because I'm not good at pretending. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love the work. I think we've really enjoyed seeing what the Architecture Lobby has been coming up with and are so glad to see that they keep continuing this process of doing somewhat rogue or unofficial events, always party to these larger um, architecture gatherings, whether it's the Venice Biennale. I believe they did something in 2014, um, and I'm sure they... I, I would reckon that they have something planned for this year. Yes, they do. So we'll we'll keep some qu- some links up to that in that case, so that anyone who's attending can check it out. Fred, had, you know Killian, right? You've worked with. I them? do. Yeah, originally originally through Arconnect as well, but um, he's uh, come to Baltimore a few times to do research on on things like uh, neighborhood change and um, arts based development. So got to hang out with him a few times, and I, I know Peggy as well. Peggy was a, a professor of mine. She's a, a fantastic teacher. I really consider her a mentor, too. So it's been fascinating to keep track of, of that project, too. Hey, and just before we move on, I wanted to, I don't know if this is the right time to, to point this out, but um, you tell me, and you can edit this out, Amelia. <laughs> Go for it, Ken. So there were some elections for the AIA board, uh, an at-large director, um, I think some vice presidents, a secretary, and perhaps. And I had the opportunity to, at the North Central States, put it to a few of them, um, some questions about the profession, primarily about two specific issues that we've hit on this show a few times. And you, I, I would have to say I, we had dreadful answers, uh, dreadfully unsatisfactory answers to these questions. And I can't tell you how important it is that if you're listening to this podcast, you're working in an office or you're at a school, if you want to know what the direction of this profession is going, I can tell you it's not in your direction. It has nothing to do with you. Yes, we do have some uh, younger members on the board, but they are typically associate members. One at-large director, I think, was, uh, who was a 40 under 40. But we're woefully you guys, I say we, um, because I understand technically, because I haven't been licensed for more than 10 years, I'm one of the emerging professionals. We are woefully underrepresented, both in, and again, I'm speaking as a white male, so I'm um, adequately represented, let's put it that way. But generally speaking, I think this profession is woefully underrepresented by uh, people who care about your interest. And the two questions that I specifically want to refer to Racial diversity and what is the AIA's plan for dealing with the crushing student loan debt? The response I got to that question was was uh, patently ridiculous. It was um, the basic response was, "I want to work to work with banks to regulate banks and to lower the cost of borrowing." Now, anyone who's taking out a student loan right now is certainly knows that the president of the AIA has no control, is not running for the Fed, is not running to be president of the United States, running to be president of an organization that could barely raise $10,000 through a PAC on the, through the convention. So there is no, there is no, to, to, re, to say that answer is just to be just inept, unskilled, and clearly is not representing the direction of where this profession is going. And what do I mean by that? I've been, it was told throughout the convention that 40,000 current architects will be retiring in the next five or 10 years. And so there's going to be a gaping hole and you need to fill that gaping hole. And so I can't say it enough. If you're waiting for somebody to hand you a gold-plated invitation, golden ticket, so to speak, to run for board seats or to run for your local chapter, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. You have to step up and do it. And I'm just, you know, it's, it's, it's really ridiculous. The other question, which was even more sad, was asked of, a, of, a, of an at-large director who seemed like he was a pretty progressive person, wore a cool suit, had cool glasses, looked like a cool guy. And the question was, what is your diversity plan? What is, you, what is your plan for increasing diversity in the profession? And this, this particular question came from Rosa Shang, and everyone who um, is in the AIA or even outside the AIA knows who Rosa is. And the response to this question was, well, we were asked about this at a local community meeting or a city meeting, and I didn't have a response for it. So I went back and looked at my office manual, and, and sure enough, we have a diversity plan in there. 
So I checked that box off. It just absolutely blew my mind that this was the response to to how do we increase diversity in the profession? I mean, what are you doing going to do personally about this? And it was just again, mine I couldn't believe. And Rosa actually took him to task later for that response because it was glib. It was trying, I don't know if he was trying to be funny. I don't know what it was, but it, the people who are running for office like to pay lip service to caring about your issues. But if we have 40,000 people, most of them running in this, you know, for board seats, they don't care about your issues. They care about the status quo. And, you know, in the age of Bernie Sanders and the age of Barack Obama, if you're waiting, you're wasting your time. One of the things that was said at the, uh, Architecture Lobby event was uh, uh, there was a young woman in the office who said, you know, she was saying we're we're we young interns. We're scared. We're scared to push too hard. We don't want to lose our jobs. We need to have you know, it's terrifying to think of pushing of of pushing for yourself. And um, I think it was Kiefer Dunn said, you know, what would happen or maybe it was something that that came up in the in the film. Someone said, you know, what would happen if all of the un and underpaid young interns in our field just stopped working tomorrow. And I love that question because you sort of can think of it as like a um, like a science fiction movie almost, you know, the day the interns stopped working <laughs> and, and like what would happen? What would all the clients do? What would happen to all of those those developers that are counting on us? And yeah, I, I really liked toying around with that idea. Um, and I tweeted a lot. Rosa Chang was tweeting like crazy. I mean, I think if you follow the AIA convention hashtags, you can see a lot of the discussion around this that were going on. The discussions exist, definitely. But as Ken says, it's in many ways they are being molded by the old white males. And I can I in many ways include myself in that category. You know, the 20 the something year olds are the ones that have power right now because they know the software. They know the way that social media works. They have all of these tools. They just don't have the experience. But they you know, if they were to all stop working tomorrow, we the rest of us, us old people, we'd be in trouble. Absolutely. It was good to see that there were steps in that direction from the AIA leadership, but especially um, in the awarding of Denise Scott Brown and Robert Venturi yes. the gold medal at the ceremony at the end. They, and they did say they had changed the rules for the first time ever. Did I remember this right? In order to yes. uh, give the gold medal to a partnership, which was, I mean, that was just genuinely moving. And, and uh, you know, Donna, Donna whooped, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, when they announced it, and 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 she was, I think, the first of the audience that was on their feet, and and uh, eventually, I think there were two standing ovations for um, for Denise on yeah. stage. But at the same time, too, this is such a, a moment that that should have come so long ago. I mean, it should be so so ordinary at this point to recognize that that it's not just the valorous act of one individual human being that creates architecture. That partnerships, teams exist. And maybe the next couple of steps could be that, you know, that intern who has the bleeding uh, hand on the model is a member of that team as well. And, and they should be on stage, too. The whole process should be more transparent and probably less, you know, less heroic and original to, to use uh, Denise Scott Brown and, and Bob Venturi's phrase and, and more ordinary. I will say that uh, LMN Architects won Firm of the Year, and they are in Seattle, and um, they seem like a wonderful place to work. And they invited a, bi a, bun a big group, at least a couple dozen of their people up onto the stage to accept that award, which I thought was a lovely gesture. And then they threw a really bitchin' party the next <laughs> oh, night yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was um, outdoors under these balloons that were floating around, sort of like Fred does these manatee balloons. <laughs> they were sort of these balloons floating around and there was great food and drink and uh, everyone famous was there. It was it was uh, it was quite a party. So thank you, LMN Architects in Seattle for being such a good firm. And it sounds like doing a lot of these things that we we want our profession to do. It renewed my hope that there is somebody out there that can teach white people how to dance, though. Oh. I will say that. <laughs> a lot of white man's overbite, a lot of Elaine's. But it was a great, it was a great, it was a, no, really, honestly, it, it was, it was a lot of fun. And they seem like a really together uh, group of people. And, and um, just the video of their firm, it's like, wow, firms like that exist. And it's really nice to see that. That's so heartening. Maybe not, perhaps, speaking of heartening things. Ken, do you want to also give us a little bit of a check-in based on the resolutions? Well, the big, the big resolution, which was stunning in its, um, in the fact that uh, it was nearly unanimous, was a uh, amendment. Uh, it was sixteen two, a resolution sixteen two, amending the current intern declaration policy. Really, I think to briefly summarize, it was 
making sure that people who exploited uh, workers, so this is really kind of a great tie-in with the architecture lobby, who, anyone who exploits uh, way, uh, labor um, doesn't pay their interns, doesn't get um, effed, doesn't get a gold medal, <laughs> doesn't get... Or they get F'd because they don't get the gold medal. they get their F. They get (laughs) membership into the fellowship. Not Our short-term terminology is getting F'd. But for most people, it's entering the College of Fellows of the AIA. I just say getting F'd. It's shorthand. It's a podcast. We only have so much time. (laughs) Yeah, the Superhero (laughs) Hall of Fame. Um, They don't get that. They don't get Justice League of America recognition status. They get get Buckus. uh, Buckus. And anyway, um, so that was, it was almost, I swear, I think it was probably like a handful of votes. I think you can count them on maybe um, seven fingers, I think. That's what it took. There's something really quite like striking. So on the one hand, I'm criticizing the people in power, but then at the same time, I'm, I'm also thinking about the delegates in the audience who actually thought uh, were, were thoughtful about this issue and um, voted uh, overwhelmingly in favor of this declaration. Now, I, I, from what I understand, there isn't anything actionable thus far. I think I think it has to go to for uh, additional consideration. I heard somebody say that, so I'm not quite sure about that. So maybe Greg, you know, will clarify that on the website. But the other, the other um, interesting one was, uh, of course, the never-ending attempts by the, uh, the truther movement inside the AIA to um, somehow open a, reopen an investigation that's already been closed for uh, Resolution 16-3, which is the uh, opening, reopening the investigation to collapse at World Trade Center 7. I was really, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to do this. And, and um, I had heard through the grapevine that there was going to be, after the resolution was going to be, after the resolution was presented, there was going to be a, like a co-opting of all the microphones and kind of pushing it along. So call the question and, and move on. I, I felt really differently about that. I felt that it wasn't enough to actually try to ignore this group one another another year in a row or you know another year i thought i could stand up there and say something about it because i found it deeply puzzling and concerning that an organization such as ours on the one hand a professional organization which has members they pay their dues they're allowed to pull these resolutions they're if they get 50 people they can do this kind of stuff and present them and get for a vote and which is fine i mean i really don't have a problem with the procedural kind of stuff like that but I thought it was curious that on the one hand, everybody kind of groans and moans about this and, ple- and begs that these issues would stop coming up. And then on the other hand, we'll take $10,000 for an expo uh, floor booth. And I found it very curious because, you know, you, I don't, I, despite what I think people were saying on the website, I just don't feel that the AI is required to sell anybody a booth. I mean, if they're required to sell someone a booth, I mean, you know, what's stopping just about any ridiculous organization from coming in there and saying, well, you have to sell me a booth. You have to sell me space to your private party. And I think that as such, the AIA should return the money and stop taking the uh, the money from gr- from a group who, uh, who raises it from individuals who are desperate for answers that they'll never get because the, the answers aren't the ones that they're looking for. So I, I went up there and pretty much read the profession and the members, um, myself included, and the leadership, the you know, somewhat of a pretty terse statement, and said, you know what, you just do the principal thing and stop trying to reason with these people and just return their money and just let them keep, you know, voting. It's one thing to do it on the on the business floor where only AIA members are allowed. It's another to allow this group to have access to a floor where general public could come or people who sell products come and kind of get a taste of the, the crazy tin-hatted um, idiots inside our profession. So, so that's kind of the end of that. So we'll see. I did not run into the booth on the floor. Fred, I don't know if you saw the Truther's booth. No, I missed that. I, I would have gone yeah. looking if I had known. <laughs> I saw it last year. I didn't, I didn't see it this year. Yeah, it. I actually think Russ Davidson handled it nicely at the end when the when the resolution went down pretty much in flames. And he said, you know, I would hope that in the future people will be mindful that this is a very serious event. And for many, many people whose lives or families lives were lost on that day and that basically this won't keep coming back and in slightly revised form every year. But as Ken said, if it's if they do the if they fill out the resolution paperwork properly, there's nothing to stop them. But that's different from accepting their money to buy a bunch of space and sell their message on our trade show floor, yeah. which I don't think we should be doing. Yeah. And I got into a little bit of trouble 
over it as well. I took a little heat, took a little grief. <laughs> it's not worth it if you can't take a little heat. Well, you know, it's funny. The name of the convention or the premise of the convention was disruptors or disruption. Right. And, <laughs> right. So Ken disrupted. He did what they said. <laughs> yeah, I did. I didn't check in with my member component. <laughs> check your so handler. I, yeah, so I got, I got a little <laughs> bit of a conversation from the executive director about it, and uh, I, clearly, I did not, I did not go through appropriate channels to uh, let people know that I was going to be doing this, and they were caught a little off guard, and and uh, you know, I, I just was pretty clear. I think that the right decision for me and for you was to kind of make it seem like I was going and to make it to make sure that you. That it was that you didn't have any clue about it, that this was a rogue thing, that it was outside of your knowledge. And that way it would hopefully would if somebody were going to say something to them, they could, you know, resist. They could at least kind of deal with the blowback by saying, hey, he's a, he's a nut job from New Jersey who happens to live in our state. And he didn't talk to <laughs> us about it first. So, <laughs> well, we have yet to receive any type of solicitation from such group to be on the podcast or to have any part of Arcanite serve um, to expand on their readers of their ideas. So I'm, I think that they, of course, could have many other ways to kind of bring this conversation to the people if they're interested in it and in, in doing it through due process. But I, I do tend to agree with both of you that this is sounds like a pretty, pretty noxious thing to have to bring up every year. I hope, though, that there were other great things about the convention. So why don't we hear just kind of final thoughts? Do any of you have um, any kind of final ideas about that you'd like to share from your reflections on the convention? Uh, Fred, especially if you have something that particularly stuck in your craw from just one day of going to this whole crazy circus. Oh, just exhaustion. You know, I, I was thrilled to be there. And, and I want to give a shout out to AIA Baltimore, my local chapter, for giving me the chance to go. So thanks, y'all. Don and Ken, what about you guys? As always, my best part of it is being with the people I want to be with there. So Ken and I, of course, stuck together the whole time. We were next to each other the whole time, pretty much running around. It was great to meet you, Fred, and sit down and actually enjoy a, a drink and a nosh and a snack, a, a chat with you. And um, then we also, we, you know, tweeted and, and sent that picture of us together to all of the other our connectors and friends that we all share in common so that people could see we were actually meeting in Meatspace. Ken and I had uh, drinks with Rick Joy, which was great. He's an old classmate of mine. And so it was wonderful to see him again. I haven't seen him in many years. And um, to see my my Cyarch friends, Josh and Janice, from who are now in Muncie, to see them in a big city again in something that feels more like a, a place where they belong. Sorry, Muncie. Um, <laughs> it, it's just it's great to be in that environment. And, you know, walking into a building and knowing that there's 20,000 other architects in the same building, that's a crazy physical experience. <laughs> yeah. Good, Fred? I, I have to say that, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I don't really feel very connected to the local chapter here and, and primarily because I feel like um, I'm a bit of an outsider. But when I go there and I'm spending time with Donna, Josh and Janice, I've never met any nicer group of people and people who are more concerned about your well-being and really care about who you are and being part of something. And that was a big takeaway for me. And Fred is such a, is such a great, such a great person to talk to and hang out with and um, meeting, you know, Rick Joy, who's interesting, very interesting guy, has great stories about uh, some famous Swiss architect um, building in LA right now, um, which is just off the wall, crazy stories. And you know, to be around people that, that are, don't take themselves too seriously. I mean, you know, the one thing I didn't expect to see when I was walking down the uh, main drag of, um, of the convention floor was to see Peter Marino dressed up in his fucking kick-ass leather outfit <laughs> and arm in arm with his, uh, with his husband or partner. And it was just stunning. I'm like, I'm thinking, I'm, I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm walking through, I feel like an outsider. He walks through and he doesn't feel like an outsider. He feels like you are the outsider and that you yeah. are not part of his orbit. And it's something very, very, I'm going, damn, that's good. To be, I feel good to be an architect when I'm around him. <laughs> he, he was badass. He looked so cool walking Total through there. Badass. And then, yeah. And then Neri's just gorgeous, you know, in the way, in her outfits. And then there's people just, you know, in like Birkenstocks and shorts that are hanging out too, that are also architects. I just love that whole range. And the elegance of Denise Scott Brown. I mean, yes. you know, this, this is a person who has been really, I think, 
who, you know, it's funny, there was some self-congratulatory nature to the presentation of her gold medal that I took a, took a little bit of umbrage with because I thought, you know, wait a second, you're fortunate enough to be able to want to hand this award and put this award around her neck, but she's had to live with the, the, the kind of, the ignore, you know, the kind of brushing away of her achievement by this profession and this professional organization for a good, good amount of time now. And, and to have her there in her city get this award to be a part of that experience and to see her do it and to see her do it with such class and grace and just makes you just lifted the profession in ways that there that nobody inside the profession could ever do and you know to have that voice come towards the the end at the end of her career and um towards the you know the you know the apex of her of her life on this planet is is something very special and i'll I'll always remember that moment because it was really it really struck me in in very tangible ways that I just won't think I'll ever forget. Oh, that's a very sweet way, I think, to kind of round off our reflections on it. And it sounds like also, and then we kind of bring this up almost like it's a dead horse that we like to beat, but it sounds like the convention really could be a testament to this, the drastic range of personalities and, and particular professional uh, proclivities that exist in architecture. So it's so great to hear, even amongst the annoyances, there are these little victories. <laughs> um, looking forward to next year. Hopefully, Paul and I can join you guys again and we can do, ideally, we would this, I think this would be the perfect opportunity for the drunk panel. So maybe we can get that happening. Oh. I, you know, frankly, it's in Orlando. I think I'm going to have to oh, be drunk. We could be on a roller coaster <laughs> at the same time. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's what they're talking That's, about. Wait, what's it called, Fred? What was it called? The tower the, coaster? The coaster coaster tower? Polar, or something like the, that? The polar coaster. The polar, polar coaster. <laughs> like a pole. Well, I, I can only imagine. I'll have to... Uh, oh, man. <laughs> It'll be a surprise. I don't know. Or, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it will be. Okay. Let's keep it. We'll keep it secret for now. So before we end today's episode, I want to quickly plug some exciting coverage we have coming up on Archonnect. Um, as everyone is aware of because they've been beaten over the head with it uh, for the last few weeks or so. The Venice Biennale is opening quite shortly, and we have a few reporters on the ground who will be sending us dispatches from their time there, reporting on different pavilions, going to different events, going to different collateral, various unofficial and official events, and generally just chiming in on what the mood is in Venice. I also want to point attention to a pretty exciting thing we've done with the Taubman, some architects, um, some architecture students from the Taubman School of Architecture at University of Michigan. These are some students who are working with the U.S. pavilion to install their, um, the architecture imagination uh, pavilion there. And these are students who have been working with the architects as well as actually finishing up thesis, which is already kind of a pretty impressive things to juggle at the same time. And so we've set up a blog with them where you can check in with their experience traveling to Venice, many of them for the first time, and their experience putting the pavilion together in a very real sense. Like when you're passing through security, where do your drill drill bits go for when you're needing that material later when you're going to be putting up the pavilion? So some really exciting stuff coming from there as well. So we'll have links to all of that in the show notes and keep your eyes peeled for more features with interviews from the different curators all over the map in Venice. Um, and I think that's it for this week's show. So Fred, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you on. Donna and Ken, it was great to meet you. And, and Amelia, it was great to talk with you all. Thank you. We hope to have you on again soon, maybe on a more manatee heavy episode. Um, <laughs> not that that's all you're about, but of course I have to drop the manatee. So that's our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, or you can send us an email to connect at arcconnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Um, we're also now available on Google Play Music. And look out for our next one-to-one episode coming up this Monday. I will be speaking with Amro Salam, an architect involved in the collective Architects for Society. So until next week, thanks, everybody.